Hello, and welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast designed to address the concerns of black men and provide a forum for them to learn, feel empowered, and be the men they are called to be. In our first episode, we will discuss if there is a need to create a National Black Lives Matter movement that's sustainable and impactful. Recorded during the heights of the Black Lives Matter protests in early June, my guest, Professor Saladin Ambar, educational activist El Mani Viney, and Chris Broussard, radio show host of the Fox Sports channel's The Odd Couple, will discuss the issues we must tackle to become a more equitable nation. And on that note, let's start the show. Well, welcome. Welcome to uh, today, Sunday. It's Sunday, June 7th. Welcome to Black Men Speak. It's a show that gives Black men an opportunity and a platform just to let, let the nation know that we're out here. We're out here trying to better our communities, um, be a part of the community, our families. And so we're in for a real treat today. As you know, over the course of a week or so, we have been really dealing with the deaths of George Floyd, Amon Arbery, and Brianna Taylor. We're going to make sure to say her name as well. And happy birthday to her. She had a birthday over a weekend. And people came out in droves. The nation had protests to talk about curbing and basically ending police violence against African-Americans. But we've got some work to do. You know, the protests are great, but is that a national movement? And there's just some up because before we really uh, we meet our panel tonight, there's a lot some things that we just need to talk about that really didn't come up as much during these protests. And some of the things like you know the black male achievement gap is 30 percent higher as far as achievement, which is is really outstanding. And that was in 2007 numbers. There's also a, a gap between home ownership. It's worse than it was in, in 1968. And that, that's a problem. And then here's another startling statistic because we talked about police violence. Last year, there was over 1,100 people killed by police. And so that averaged to about three a day. There were only 27 days where police did not actually kill someone. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure... How many of those were African-American? That's not the point. The point is that violence here in the United States by police is at ridiculous levels. And another startling statistic is from 2013 to 2019, only 1% of those police were brought up on charges. So it's not, uh, it's not hard to think why we are angry and why we want some results and we want some change. But is there a national movement that has started? Or what are some of the things that we need to do? And so here tonight to talk about this issue, I have some very intelligent brothers that have been on the front lines talking about what's going on in the community, um, not only 
in their professions, but on social media. And so we're going to bring them up right now and I'll introduce them. I have Saladin Ambar. He's a professor at Rutgers University, fellow GU alum. I have Elmani Viney. He is, um, he's an education guru, I would say, but he's been on the front lines really um, in the education front, mentoring uh, young men and really giving the deep, the lowdown of what needs to be done, not only in the community for them as students, but also as men. And then we have Chris Broussard. I've known this brother for a very long time and a Fox Sports analyst. And he is the president of King, which is knowledge, inspiration, and nurturing through God. And he he's always um, talking about what we need to do in our communities. And it's helpful. So welcome, brothers. How are you guys doing? All right. Thank you. Good. Good. Great so, to be here. Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started. And we're going to first start with you, Saladin. You know, how we're going to work it tonight is, you know, if I'll direct a question uh, to one person just to kind of lead lead the discussion. Then if anyone wants to chime in, feel free. So Saladin, uh, what were your initial thoughts as a black man pertaining to last week's events and the recent protests? Thanks, brother. Um, you know, I'm a father, first and foremost. Um, and that's how I identify myself these days more than anything. My children are 13 years old. I have 13-year-old triplets. I got two black boys and a black girl. And when you hear these types of incidents, the first thing I think of is, you know, I'm 50 years old and now my children have to deal with what I was dealing with at their age. You know, when I was in New York growing up, we dealt with the shooting of Eleanor Bumpers. We dealt with Bensonhurst and Howard Beach and the killing of Michael Griffith. Some people may know those names, others may not, but this is part of my childhood and um, I'm just stricken and agonized over the fact that this now has to become a, a part of my children's uh, present and future. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, the next thing that came to my mind was we've been obviously in a 400 year struggle just to be considered human beings. It's not as though if police stopped killing black people tomorrow, we'd be given something. You know, we are already entitled to full human rights and dignity. Um, just to get to level zero would be uh, police not killing us. And so that's a frustration. And it's as if we've been fighting this virus of white supremacy and police brutality with hydroxychloroquine. You know, we've been taking little bits and stabs at it, but really haven't applied the full vaccine, which is a real total eradication of, of the mindset, but also the practices that, that confront us. Um, you know, you get to a certain stage in life and you just, um, are really beyond belief that we're still dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's kind of where I am. Okay, great. Anybody like to add uh, to that question? Well, as, as we've seen in the protests, there have been people of all races. I just went to one yesterday with my family in Montclair, New Jersey. And it's nice to see, you know, it was actually mostly white, uh, more whites than, than blacks and other people of color which is good to see. And it kind of reminded me of the 1960s and the civil rights movement when part of this is sad to say, but it was reality. Part of their strategy for Martin Luther King and the others was when as they marched nonviolently, they wanted cameras there. 
because they knew the police would be violent with them and beat them with billy clubs and shoot fire hoses at them and seek sick dogs on them. They knew that when whites saw that, that that would change the minds of many white people and get them on the side of civil rights. And that's, it did do that. And this same thing happened with George Floyd. Again, it's sad and unfortunate that it took this, but obviously whites seeing him murdered in cold blood by the police, seeing how nonchalant the police were about it, how Derek Chauvin was just, I mean, you can film me all you want. I still have a right to kill this man. Uh, seeing that really ignited something in white Americans. And the fact of the matter is, this is not new. We obviously been dealing with this ever since we've been in this country. And I actually tell people, the fact is that as many of these police killings and police brutality as we see on, on camera phones, it probably has actually lessened. It was probably worse in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. And obviously it was worse long before that. But now we're just seeing it on the phones. And think even today, how many of these things happen that we aren't seeing on people's camera phones. So this is a tragic situation. It must stop. It's unfortunate that it took something like George Floyd being murdered for non-black people to wake up. But thankfully, at least they have. And now the key is for us to move from protests to changing laws and to getting legislation in place that's going to change this going forward. Great, great. Elmani? You know, I want to continue on. I think what, what Chris just said, because I think uh, Saladin and I think Chris has um, encapsulated a lot of what my thoughts are of this, but that last part, how do we shift it to policy is, is, is really what's critical because I think what happens with all of these, and if we think about the first turning point in terms of visual of police brutality, you gotta go back to Rodney King, right? You That stark one, that was the first aha, to America, we told you this is happening to us. We we told you that this wasn't a facade. We told you that we weren't trying to play the race card, that this is reality, right? And so that being the first, and every time you're thinking, okay, we have a movement where there's change and we end up back at the same place, right? And that's because it stays within the movement, but we really don't see a systems change, a policy change across the board. I will say, and I want to, you know, delve into the other questions as we go on. What's interesting is that this is the first time that I've seen, you know, I mean, I was born in 1974, but this was so I, you know, in terms of seeing these small technical things about policies beyond the civil rights, you know, amendments beyond that. This is the first time that I'm seeing a number of cities and states begin to think about doing sweeping measures in terms of policy. But we still got a long way to go. That's nice what their intention is. But at the end of the day, let's see what it looks like when things are signed on the dotted line. Exactly, exactly. And, we'll, and you will definitely uh, get to that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we you know, what we, what some of the policies will need to at least start with. Cause I know we want, one of the things we won't be able to tackle all of them 
at once. Uh, it'll definitely have to be a slow and strategic momentum. But I want to, you know, I want to get back to you because, you know, I know you've uh, been dealing, you deal a lot with with students and young people. And I, what, I, what I noticed, at least in the demonstration we had uh, yesterday, uh, they led the entire thing. So what have you been, you know, what have you been hearing from some of your students? Uh, have they been protesting and what have been the biggest things that that they that was on their mind and what are the things that they need to know in order to be more diverse in the pro some of the protests so they can be more activists well i i actually think we need to look at this differently um and i'm gonna say this when i first started talking to my graduating seniors from from the high school i'm at many of them said they had to turn off and you really don't hear young people saying this they actually had to turn off their social media because there was so much trauma. If if you really think about the George, if you really think about the George Floyd situation, right? If we look at that in isolation, we are seeing a man die in front of us. Hmm. Let's stop and think about that. We are seeing a man die in front of us. And now when you talk about the narratives on social media, you have several. You have those of us that are older recounting our traumas, and so the young people are seeing that narrative. You have other past incidents come up, whether it be Ahmaud Avery, whether you got Trayvon Martin, whether it's images, once again, of Rodney King or Philando Castrillo or Walter Davis. And so now you have all those they're seeing that because they're more astute on Instagram and Twitter. They don't, not really on Facebook, but they're more astute on that. And then along with that, then you see the counter. You see the person in the White House. I will not mention his name, but you see the person in the White House and what they say and, and what he says. And then you see the narrative coming from that side. And so what happens is, is that there was a lot of emotional distraught. Now, I can't speak for the younger grades, but I have the class of 2020. They've already been going through it by the fact that they're not having a prom and graduation and have lost mm. their team. So now this is all encapsulated. Here's why I'm saying all of this. The young people, as in our neighborhood that we saw, they're out there. They're ready to go. They're speaking up, right? But I would right. caution that us that are older not get in their way, but we need to act as a support system. And here's why. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm concerned about with them is the emotional toll it can take. Because right now they're at the crescendo. They're seeing everybody together. But as the three of us, the four of us spoke about prior to jumping on, mm -hmm. we know what's coming next. The splintering, other ideas, other people. Exactly. And we have to be cautious to be there as support systems when that happens, help them navigate, help them stay focused, help them see the change that they want to see through and be there as a support system. Because if we are not, they're going to burn out. And the last thing I'll say about this is I think back to the Ferguson issue when we started seeing a number of young activists start to commit suicide. And mental health and wellness is a big deal. So I know I'm not talking about young people going out and lead and all that. 
They're leading. They're using their voice, right? They have that energy. But I'm saying this because this is not talked about where we who have been in this situation, we do need to fall back, let them lead, not get in their way, not try to take the spotlight off of them. But we need to be a support system to them when the real work starts getting hard. Great. Uh, Saladin or Chris, anything, any thoughts on that or additional thoughts? No, I think, you know, part of um, part of what's going to help them and help us in the long run is institution building and supporting those institutions that already exist in existence that are you know, fighting um, violence against our people and, and um, you know, discrimination against us wherever we are. You know, the, that's the key thing. Right. Because, you know, individuals will will live, will work, will die. But institutions live on. We've got to be supportive and build institutions that don't exist, but support the ones that do exist um, that are tackling these problems at the root. Because no individual, you know, W.B. Du Bois lived 95 years, you know, uh, but he built institutions, right? He created the crisis. He helped found the NAACP. You know, organizations and institutions will outlive us. And we've got to find a way uh, to organize ourselves better uh, and to support those organizations that are already in place uh, so that the burden doesn't, um, as Elmani said, fall on um, individuals in ways that just, you know, crutch our spirit. So institutions matter in this fight because it is for the long haul. Okay, great. Yeah, along those lines, I think one thing that's plagued uh, our black movements in the past is that there hasn't been enough synergy between the young generation and the older ones. You know, there's there's been division. Um you saw it with the Black Power movement of Stokely Carmichael in the 60s and, and the civil rights movement with Dr. King. And we need synergy at this moment because the young people of all races, their hearts are in the right place. They, they grew up you know, loving black musicians and rappers and black athletes and going to school with black friends. And so their hearts are in the right place. Now the older people have to come in and take that and change the legislation because the young people can't change the laws or the legislation. Even if they're of age, they probably don't even know where to start and how to do it. So they have to be, there have to be older people in positions of power who are alongside them, who can take their energy and what they're trying to get accomplished and now change the laws. If there's no synergy there, then this can just be another emotional movement that we've had in the 60s and the 80s or early 90s. And again, today, we have to have people working together. The, the people protesting have done their part. They've sounded the alarm. They've brought attention to it. Now we know something needs to be done. We need now the people in positions of power to take that energy and make the changes happen. Great, great. And so... That's an interesting. Go back to that, you know, change in the laws and, um, you know, the people in place. I want to shift a little bit more to a specific industry. We, and we're going to focus a little bit on, on sports because yesterday, Roger Goodell actually came out and said that they were wrong for how they treated Colin Kaepernick. So well, he didn't mention Kaepernick. Oh, he didn't no, mention Colin Kaepernick. The players, <laughs> they were wrong to silence the peaceful protests of the players. 
Okay, well, there you go. So let's lay into that. Why do you do you think he mentioned him? And since he was the lead, he was primary the primary and lead protester. And so then what does that say, the fact that he did leave it out? So, Chris, I'll start with you on that. Well, I don't think he mentioned him because at this moment in time, or at least yesterday when he released a statement, or I'm sorry, Friday, he wasn't certain of whether or not they're going to get Kaepernick back in the league. And when you apologize specifically to him, that means you're ready to bring him back in the league because we know he's not in, he's not, not in the NFL because he's not good enough. It's not because of his month contract demands. He is not in the NFL because of the protest that he started. And so if, if Roger Goodell and I'm giving him, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and give them the time to change it. But if he really meant what he said, then there are a few things that will happen. One, Colin Kaepernick will get an offer to play in the NFL. Now, Kaepernick may be of the mindset right now where he's like, I'm done with it. It, it doesn't – you're not real about it. It's just PR or whatever. I'm done. Or if, But if Kaepernick really wants to play, he should have the opportunity. And the NFL can make it happen. When Michael Sam, the homosexual player out of Missouri, was in the draft, the NFL called the Rams, draft him, they said. They made a deal. The Rams wouldn't have to go on hard knocks if they drafted Michael Sam. They did draft him late in the draft. So they can make it happen. You can make a call and get Kaepernick on a team. So that needs to happen. The second thing is, will Goodell stand up to Donald Trump when Trump inevitably pushes back on what I believe are going to be players kneeling at the start of the football season. Mm -hmm. Adrian Peterson came out today and said, oh, we're definitely kneeling without a doubt. So when the players kneel, will the NFL, as they stated on Friday, stand behind the players, maybe kneel with the players? Will they support them? Or will they kowtow to Donald Trump as they did in the past? And that's admitted. In the deposition, the owners admitted mm -hmm that they allowed Trump to change the narrative. He intimidated them and he changed it from a peaceful protest of, of you know, criminal injustice to the flag and patriotism. And it is not about the flag. It is not about patriotism. Uh, Colin Kaepernick went out of his way to con consult a Green Beret from the army, Nate Boyer, mm -hmm. to see how he could show respect for the flag, but yet protest. And they decided that kneeling was the best way. And so the NFL cannot let Donald Trump change the narrative. And they must stand behind beside their players when they protest. And they must give Colin Kaepernick an opportunity to get back in the NFL. That's mm -hmm. at the very least. I haven't even gotten into, and I won't at this moment, the systemic mm -hmm. changes that they can help push forward in our system to support the players, which is what they said they do in the statement as well. Wow. And you think now more, more players uh, will protest as a result. They'll do, they'll, they'll definitely kneel more. will kneel now as a result of this. Without question. I mean, <laughs> again, quote Adrian <laughs> Peterson, he said without a doubt, and it shouldn't just, I don't think it'll just be black players. Uh, you obviously have some whites that joined in before, but I think more and more will now. You've seen all these white players and athletes speak out, a lot of white quarterbacks. 
I actually think, look, I salute the players for the nice video they put together and they made demands of Roger Goodell and the NFL. They said, we want you to condemn, uh, we want you to say Black Lives Matter. We want you to condemn systemic oppression. We want you to say that you support the players in their peaceful protests. They did all of that, but the players didn't go far enough. The, the NFL is powerful. Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft are friends with Donald Trump. We know that wealth and monetary power is what runs this nation and gets laws changed. These owners can get things changed. These owners have access to the heads of the police department and things like that. If the owners come out themselves, make a statement, or behind the scenes talk to the people in power, the lawmakers and politicians, they can stop much of the police brutality. We've seen the police show restraint and patience when dealing with whites. Whites who are armed, whites who are armed with assault weapons, as we saw the militias in Michigan and Wisconsin and Virginia and other places, they could show restraint and let them have their constitutional rights. Yet with African-Americans who are unarmed and aren't, are, are complying, they can't show restraint. They can stop it tomorrow if they want. And the owners need to be held accountable to trying to make systemic change because the whites in power can make it happen. They need to go as far as getting federal prosecutors to prosecute these cases with police rather than the local prosecutors who are typically in bed with the local police unions. And that's why you don't see them get charged or get convicted. They need to change that. And they need to maybe fight to see if you, you have to get the percentage, the racial demographics of the local police department to match that of the town or the city that they work in. You can't have a city that's 80% black or a town that's 80% black with a police force that's 15% black and 80% white. They need to get the police force racial demographics, not only of the rank and file, but also of those in management and in power to match up with the demographics of the towns that they're policing. These are things that owners in the NFL who are billionaires, all of them, can get done. The players need to be out of them. Great. Thanks. Thank you. That's powerful. Yes, they do. And they do have that power. And we'll definitely have to, and we'll have to do our protesting. There may be some, some things we may have to do, stop, even though we can't go to games now, but there will be some point where we will be able to go back. And we may have, that's what, that's some of the, that's some of the protests we may have to embark on, but we'll get to that later. Um, so we want to, I want to shift to you, Elmani, um, about the board of ed. And the reason why I wanted to shift there, because a lot of this, you know, because it was student led and you heard some of the pain that these students go through on a daily basis in their schools. And so what are some of the changes, the systemic racism that goes on in the board or in school districts? And what are some of the changes that we, we need to, to be aware of and start to fight for with, when it comes to our children? Wow. And, and, and we gotta get this done in an hour. <laughs> oh. Um. You know, when you ask that, I, it, I, I still haven't wrapped my head about how to say these things as succinctly. 
But I'll say this. In our district here in West Orange, it stood out with their first statement did not even mention Black Lives Matter. If your leadership on the board, now mind you, I'm not saying anything about the superintendent, right? And there, there's multiple people on the board. So you you never know who it is on there that throws the wrench. And it's not just our district, it's other districts as well. If, you know, I was on a radio show and they asked me, what's so powerful about the words? I say, really the words black lives, they are powerful, but the most powerful word is matter. And matter because it means that you recognize and acknowledge the person in front of you. You no longer render that person, that group, that demographic invisible. So when we talk about core value, if there's no intentionality of your board to recognize and acknowledge said demographic, then what happens is, is that that mindset trickles down into who you hire, your curriculum, the priority of your guidance counseling, right? Um, school discipline, okay? So it begins to trickle down into all of those things. And so when we talk about Black Lives Matter, the first thing has to be is in, in the sense of, do you recognize our students for who they are? Will you unshackle the stereotypical view that you will see black men, young black males and young black women? And so then therefore it goes, what's the systemic change? The first one is making sure you are training your predominantly white staff because African-Americans only make up 12% Black males, only 2%. Mm. Are you recognizing and acknowledging who you have in front of you? Are you making sure your biases are not jumping in in terms of how you teach, what you say to them, and how you react to when they push back? I always say this. We're looking at Derek Chauvin, the police officer that had the knee on the neck, I'm more fearful of Amy Cooper because Amy Cooper in that reaction is the one that's sending kids to the Dean's office. Amy Cooper is the one that says I'm uncomfortable with this student in Amy Cooper is the reason why black girls are getting arrested in second grade for temper tantrums. Right. The Amy changed it to Tom Cooper too. Right. So we, we make this non-gender specific. And, and, and so what needs to change? Few things. Number one, look at all disparities. Where do we see in every school district disparities? Disparities in terms of college applications, disparities in terms of GPA, disparities in terms of school discipline. That's critical. You need to look there. Then you need to go into why. What is at the root? causes of these. And then you need to address them with changes. If it means that all teachers need to go through year-long cultural competency um, changes, that's what they need to do. 
if it means that we need to put in stop gaps, meaning that before a student is suspended or given detention, that there needs to be some sort of gathering between student, teacher, and parent before then, okay, to get on the same page, then that's what we need to do. If we need to make sure that our students, our African-American students are, be, are given the proper um, opportunity for colleges and universities, making sure are they applying to the same schools as those of their white counterparts with the same GPA or better than them, then that's what we need to do. So there is a lot that needs to go on because honestly, there's no place greater than our school systems where the mindset of all lives matter perpetrates through that, permeates through that, right? And that's false equity. And like I said, we need to do another show on this because it's really shown its ugly head in this time of remote learning. Really shown its ugly head. That's what I believe needs to happen. And I will say this, school districts, my last point that is, school districts must become more intentional about hiring not just black men, but hiring black men, black women. And when you hire black men, not putting us in a position where all we're there for is discipline. And if I hear one more time a school district saying they can't find no one, I'm going to jump off a roof because all you need to do is build partnerships with every university's school of education. And you can get that. And I saw I said last thing, I mean this is the last part. The state of New Jersey needs to loosen up its requirements for alternative route. And I'm not going to toot myself on the, on the horn, and I don't mean it that way, but I was the New Jersey 2006 Amistad Teacher of the Year, right? I will tell you right now, I came in under alternate route. If they have the alternate route stipulations of today, I'd be working as a corporate lawyer because I wouldn't have been able to qualify. Mm. And so you can't have things that say, we need more black staff but then your requirements are those that keep African-Americans out. Or it may, if, and then when we have them, we have to make sure we, we obtain them and not lose them because of budget right. cuts because they get in. But that's a whole nother story. Um, Saladin, anything to add on that? No, man, these brothers have said it well. I'll just add that, you know, um, there's been a historic fear and also a legal opposition to race specific programs um, but it's clear that, you know, the whole point of Black Lives Matter, I'll just add this dimension, the Black part of that is just acknowledging that there's been a historic and ongoing problem with the way the state and the way uh, white citizens have treated and institutions have treated Black people. And so, you know, um, if you, back to this COVID uh, analogy, you know, you apply a, a medical solution that's specific to the disease you're looking at. And black lives have been under threat and assault historically in this country. You're gonna have to, this country has to come to grips with its black citizens past and present and do something about it. And so, you know, those institutions and, and higher ed, you know, our institution, Georgetown, which has attempted to address, um, you know, its past, uh, you know, acts through, uh, you know, uh, policies that involve some form of reparations, those race specific policies have to not be seen as somehow unfair or um, inequitable, what have you. They have to be seen as, 
you know, writing historic wrongs and also present wrongs. This is an ongoing problem. This isn't like, you know, from 300 years ago and, you know, my parents didn't own slaves. This is a perpetual problem. So, you know, the kinds of policies that Elmani is talking about and Chris is talking about in implementing, whether it's the NFL or high schools or colleges, you know, those are going to have to be um, acceptable or made acceptable uh, for their specificity because this is a very unique set of crimes that have been perpetuated against this community for many years. Can yeah. I add Keith? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, add, yeah, go ahead. Paladine, that was a great point. Look, it was race specific procedures and policies that put African Americans in the position we're in. So it is going to take race specific intentional ones to get us out of it. And you know, even when when with affirmative action, which has been here what 40, 50 years, you always get pushback from whites on that. White people have to understand they've had 400 years of affirmative action. And we could obviously go back to slavery, but if you go to even after slavery, well, the Homestead Act of 1862, right before slavery, where they gave whites the land west of the Mississippi, essentially for free, it's for a dollar. Uh, where you go to the Social Security Act in the 1930s, the way it was racially enforced, where blacks were largely left out of it. The GI Bill, where black veterans were largely left out. And, and the Federal Housing Administration loans of the mid you know, 20th century, redlining, that literally created the white suburbs and gave mortgages to whites to lift them out of poverty when they wouldn't give those mortgages to blacks or they wouldn't sell homes in certain neighborhoods to blacks. So there were very race specific policies and procedures that put us in this situation. It's going to take those same type of race specific policies to lift us out. Whites need to understand that all the marching, all the fist in the air and all that stuff right now is nice, but we are going to need hardcore systemic change, race specific systemic change to get this thing settled. And, you know, we've been putting band-aids on our racial problems since the beginning. Hmm. Band-aids that have helped to some, you know, we, we can't deny there's been some progress, sure. but the band-aids don't get to the root of the problem. So every generation this happens. It happened in the 60s, happened in the late 80s, early 90s, and it's happening today. And it'll be happening 20 years from now if we don't really get to the root of the problem and address the systemic issues, not just the individual level issues. Great, great. Saladin, I want to touch upon this. Um, and it was a quote um, that I got out of Wired magazine. And it was from civil rights activist DeRay McKeeson. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. But he said the movement doesn't win if there's only a small set of people who understand the solutions. The movement wins when there's a broad understanding that we need a system that doesn't kill people. When a critical mass of citizens can envision what that looks like and when concrete steps are taken to make it happen. So, you know, the one thing that we've seen are the, we've seen the protests people know we're protesting about, for the most part, one thing, uh, which is violence by the police against African-Americans. But do you think we as a people really understand what, the, what we need in order to start to make the changes happen? 
that's a great question. You know, um, we know right now that there's about, let's say, a 40% minority of this country that believes that whatever the president does is correct. You know, I don't know if we can wait for that critical mass before we act or before we push for results uh, if we're, um, you know, hoping that that critical mass involves a majority of the white community, just full stop. Um, you know, the Revolutionary War was was fought and won with one third of the country in support of uh, leaving England. You know, uh, Dr. King was opposed uh, by most white Americans. Uh, and frankly, um, a number of African-Americans were afraid of the civil rights movement, uh, certainly afraid of Malcolm and others who were pushing for change. Um, we have to anticipate and believe, yes, that the humanity of all people can be touched. You know, I believe that um, fully, but we can't let that be the basis of our response and our action. In other words, our acts have to be predicated upon their justice. We have to move forward irrespective of whether that critical mass is here today or not here. You know, I mentioned Du Bois earlier, you know, he was writing in 1935 about the fact that, you know, damn, we're 67 years after the Civil War and I'm still having to deal with these issues, you know? And that was a long, that was, you know, you know 90 years ago. Uh, he couldn't premise his argument and his efforts and, and you know, Mary McLeod Bethune and others couldn't premise their, their work and their arguments on the idea that, you know, some critical mass would form around their work in the present. It may happen. I have to believe that the events we're seeing and the protests around the world Little towns in Switzerland, 17,000 people supporting Black Lives Matter. I don't want to belittle that. I think that's critical to, to affirm our humanity as a people um, worldwide. But to answer your question specifically, you know, we have to be, that body of one has to be the critical mass. Wherever we are, wherever whatever profession we're in, whatever institution we're in, wherever we desk we sit at, you are that critical mass. We have to stand up for stronger acts, statements, policies, hiring, um, the affirmation of, of our humanity and our dignity wherever we are. Um, I do believe uh, that you know we have touched a chord and these protesters have certainly touched a chord and the killings that we've seen uh, of late have touched a chord because they're so abysmal and everybody's been at home to witness them, right? There's no escape, there's no sports, everybody's been able to, you know, it's been inescapable. Uh, but that may not well be enough. And so we have to, you know, be that critical mass, if, if that makes sense. I don't want us to uh, be of the mindset that there's some tipping point of support out there in the horizon. Um, you know, we can't premise our actions on that because it may happen or may not happen. But that doesn't mean we can't achieve victory through our acts. You know, Dr. King didn't start the Montgomery boy bus boycott and others didn't start that with a critical mass. That mass mm. emerged over time through the tireless work. And and it's always been that way for us, you know? Right, great. Elmani, yeah. anything? Yeah, um, listen, I think we need to put in context the importance, but also the limitations of what we're seeing globally, right? The importance of, let's say, like, for example, in a lot of towns where protesters are mostly white in some in many cases, or these international movements 
the importance is once again that there is finally a broader global acknowledgement of the dehumanization, the historical dehumanization that African-Americans have gone through. And let's remember that one of the reasons, well, one of the many reasons why it's taken so long just to get to the acknowledgement is because, at least for America, teaching African-American history is the most controversial thing to put into a textbook because the history of the experience of African-Americans is a direct contradiction and a hypocrisy, if not a downright indictment of the imagery that the United States of America tries to put out. That's just fact. All men are created equal, but you got three-fifths, right? So mm, right. we can go forever. We're not. But my point is, is so you have had a country where generations, two parts, where white people either were actively participant in the suppression and oppression and dehumanization of African-Americans or totally isolated away from seeing any of that, right? And, and, and so therefore, for years, we've been fighting just for acknowledgement. Goes back to the article I wrote for Vanity Fair four years ago, which is, do I really have to spell this out? That, you know, the simple thing that Black Lives Matter is not in contradiction to anybody feel like we're saying nobody else's life matter. Like one plus one equals two people, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're at the stage where people are like, oh, wow, I see all of this. That's great. That's the importance. But this is also a limitation because that mass group still does not understand how deeply systemic the many issues are. They're seeing Derek Chauvin and many of them are looking at this movement about how we tackle police. But, you know, when I talk about racism and when I teach in my African-American experience class about racism, I say things like police brutality is a weapon of racism. Yes, it is racism, but it's a weapon. It is used to protect or defend those systems that are utilized to the daily suppression of African-Americans. And so therefore, when you talk about tackling food deserts and why we don't have supermarkets in our inner cities, when we talk about gentrification, when we talk about the disproportionality of what school districts get funding versus which school districts do not. When we talk about redlining and how redlining is probably one of the biggest contributors to the system of poverty for inner cities, and we talk about what the banks have done, when we talk about all these various different systems, when we talk about human resources and how if you have a black name, you're twice as likely to not get the job versus someone else, even if your resume is far more qualified, right? These are the systems that most people out there are not ready to tackle in. So in my opinion, it is take the acknowledgement because now that can't go back. That's you now finally see that systemic racism is real. But I do believe it is on the onus of the African-American community and the various different sectors that we operate to build our own mass movement 
to push for policies, whether they be on the local, city, state, or federal level, to dismantle the systems that impact us in our sectors. We got to build mass mobilization amongst us to tackle that because now at least at least on surface national and global resistance to at least acknowledging that these problems are there is now gone or dissipating you know or dispersing so now we have the entrance but i think it's up to us last thing i'll say on that is i think the big mistake to make is to believe that the mass group of people there represents the mass group of people that will be a part of the work, the day-to-day work to make systemic changes. They're not. They'll be, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing right. wrong with that. But right, I right. think you can make a tactical mistake thinking that you're going to have all those people there when the policies need to get changed. Great, great. Anything to add, Chris, on that? I think Elmani's right on the money in that as tragic as the murder of George Floyd was, this cannot just be about George Floyd. If if after, let's say these four cops are convicted that, that killed him. If, if we're done after that, if we're like, whoo, wow, we got something accomplished. It's great justice for George Floyd and his family, but this is not just about that. This is about systemic racism that's existed in this country for 400 years and helps actually, it contributes to the crime rates in the black community. Cause policemen yeah. are always going to say, well, blacks commit more, more crime per capita there. You know, that's why we deal with them more and kill them more per capita. But what contributes to that crime, the systemic racism that's put so many in poverty and given so many fewer in, you know, uh, opportunities to climb out of it. And so we have to keep in mind this is about addressing the systemic racism in the educational system, the economic situation of blacks and whites and others, and the judicial system as well. So we can't just let this be about George Floyd. This has to be about the systemic oppression altogether. Right. Well, that wraps up part one of the first episode of Black Men Speak. It was just so good, we had to have a part two, so stay tuned. Hey, do me a favor. If you did enjoy the podcast, can you do three things for me? Please subscribe, share it with your friends and family, and give a great review, not just for me, but for all the brothers out there that need to be empowered. I will leave you now with a wonderful quote from the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. This is Keith Dent. Peace.